0: Thank you for the offertory music. I know music is that its purpose in the worship service is to prepare our hearts to worship and to study God's Word. Um, you may have been to other churches, sometimes that's not the case. I've been to many where it's more a form of entertainment, and uh, though it doesn't mean we didn't enjoy it, but I, I'm thankful that we're in a place where the music is used to set our hearts and to prepare them for worship and the study of God's word. We'll be in 1 John this morning, chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. While you're turning, I just want to say I'm honored that Pastor Allen would allow me to speak. I know there's many in our church who are capable of doing that, so I'm always honored for the privilege to be the one to break the word, to be fed um, in his word. So 1 John chapter 4. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful that you have allowed us to gather today so we can study in your word and be fed to get the spiritual nourishment that we need as your children. We pray not only that you would give us understanding, but we ask for wisdom, that ability to take what you give us, to apply it in our lives, that we as your children may be pleasing to you, that at the judgment seat we might hear, well done. Thou good and faithful servant. Father, this is our prayer this morning. We ask as we go to your word, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, 1 John 4, 18. The scripture says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love Casts out fear. We talked in the verse prior to that. We'll look at that in a moment at the end of last last time I was speaking three weeks ago in that message. Uh, But it says that perfect love, that where love reaches its potential, what it's meant to do. We talked about that a little bit. Then it says because fear has torment. There's something different about fear. He that fears is not made perfect in love so we need to understand this scripture what john was inspired by god to write so that we understand what he means by this so first let's go back to verse 17 Herein is our love made perfect and this tells us then as believers how our love can reach its potential what it's meant for that we may have boldness in the day of judgment now we um i know in this church you understand this and um but it's not understood in a lot of churches what this judgment is. In a lot of places, they misunderstand the scripture. They, they somehow think there's one general judgment. Uh, this is, the, speaking of the judgment seat of Christ, this is where we as believers, where we'll be judged and rewarded or not rewarded according to the works that we've done in our Christian lives. The great white throne judgment is a thousand years later, that's a judgment of the lost. So this is talking about the judgment that we as believers will all stand and be judged and give an account of what we've done or not done in our Christian lives. So that's what the word judgment. Now, to stand boldly. So to do that, it says, says, herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. So that is the potential of our love. Its perfection is that we can stand boldly there at the judgment seat. And here, well done, as opposed to, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, for I never knew you. There was no intimate spiritual relationship. So the difference is brought out there. So again, we'll read verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. Now, thinking about that, if you hold your place in First John or if you have something electronic, obviously you don't have to use your fingers, except to tap a button or whatever you tap I don't know. Okay, so holding your place in First John, Lord willing, we'll be back. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. All right, and the verse I eventually want to get to is verse 26, but I want to back up a couple verses to verse 24. So Hebrews 10:24. And let us, so I don't want to spend a sermon arguing about who wrote Hebrews. I believe it was Paul. A lot of people say, well, it's different from all his other letters, so it couldn't be Paul, it's too, it's too educated and, Paul, and all that stuff. Oh, here's what I know. All scripture is inspired by God. So it doesn't matter who the human author was. It's it's God's word. So let's just take that. But we see the writer, who is obviously a believer, includes himself when he says, let us consider. This is for us as believers. Let us consider one another. Two things here. One, to provoke one another. Usually when we talk about provoking, we use the word to anger, provoke to anger. So where this is something as believers... Use that strength of the word provoke. Instead of nudging at someone to get them angry, provoke one another to love and, you can add that provoke again, to provoke one another to good works. So good works, we know, to define them, uh, there's a lot of good things that people do, and we're talking about Christians here. There's a lot of good things we can do as Christians, but n- according to God, not all things are counted as good. What's counted as good is what we let God do through us. It's his works that are counted as good. Our own works are, will not be counted for good. They're counted as bad. We see that in 1 Corinthians. So, so that's the difference. It's good works. It's what we allow him to do through us. It's what we're doing for his honor and glory, not for our own. Only God knows what's in our hearts and what our intentions are when we do something. I always use this story. I remember in church growing up, a lady worked really hard on a Saturday. She spent hours and hours cleaning the church, and this wasn't something that she was paid to do. It was just something she wanted to do out of the goodness of her heart. She cleaned the windows, which is you a know, really tough job. Very few people like to do that. She did all that work. She got to church Sunday morning. Nobody, of course, they didn't know she cleaned it, but nobody even noticed. Didn't say anything. She was so offended. She said, "Well, that's the last time I'm ever cleaning the church." So the point is, there's a difference. What was it? Did she do it for the Lord? Did she let the Lord use her, or was she doing it to get that honor and glory? And Jesus said, just like when he's talked about the Pharisees, they were doing many things when they prayed publicly. It was to get the praise of people. And He said, "They have their reward. They already got it. So we can get it here." or we can get it there. That's the choice we have as Christians, good works or not. So we're to provoke one another to love, and that's the subject of First John, and to good works. Now let's go on. Verse 25 is important. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So while we're as Christians provoking one another to love and good works, the best place to do that is when we're assembled together. Now today in modern times, we have Closer communications, because you can communicate electronically through different means, and you can get on a phone and talk to people. So you can encourage them through the week. But it's something different about coming together, assembling. There's something different about that. So I'm not saying, I don't think God is intending here for us to stop communicating during the week that we can do nowadays more easily than people could then, and only in these modern times. But it's important that we not stop assembling together. Here's why it says that. It says in verse 25, continuing in Hebrews 10, it says, as the manner of some is. We already know it was that way 2,000 years ago, and it's even more so now that the manner of or the practice of a lot of Christians is not assembling together. They're not worshiping anywhere. And I realize in the time we're living where there's less and less of the word being preached, it's hard to find a church that's preaching the word. We're blessed in Chattanooga, I think, namely a lot of the reason because the ministry that God used through Brother Wilson at Daytona Heights and a lot of people were influenced. And, and there's places like Faith Baptist, there are places where you can find the word being preached. And if you go to other cities, if you've ever visited somewhere and think, well, I want to go to church somewhere, so you pop into a church, it's hard to find the one, a place that's in the word, especially uh, that understands salvation of the soul is preaching the kingdom truth. So it's really difficult, but. It's important to sum it together a lot of Christians have quit going altogether. Now, it says here's why we go, exhorting one another and – well, exhorting means encouraging. We're to encourage one another, so it's important that we do that. Here it says, and so much the more as you see the day approaching – now, the day we're talking about is, is the judgment, which he's about to talk about, and that's what's in 1 John 2, that judgment. That time of our Lord returning is when that judgment's going to take place. is getting nearer and nearer, and it's very near now. So it's important. The assembling together is more important now than it was ever before, even so much the more. So it's important. So if we, can, if we only have a chance to get together once a week, it's hard if we miss a week or miss two weeks. And for believers who are, start to get in that situation, it's harder to get back. It's easier, well, you know, I'm too tired to go. Somehow, I know Christians that I've spoken to, some in my own family, um, once they get out of going, it's hard to get back. And something always comes up. Some, something comes up that they can't make it. But somehow they manage to make it everywhere else during the week just a unique factor there. So it's important. Now verse 26, that's the one that ties in. We're talking about fear. Verse 26, for if we sin willfully. Now I've heard different messages on this and basically as far as I'm concerned, other than we know from 1 John chapter 1 that When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because I believe there's sin we're not aware of. We can only confess sins that we're aware of, but we sin sometimes that we're not aware of. But mostly, sin we do is willful. So what does this mean here? Well, let's read the rest of it. Here's where it is, for if we sin willfully, after that we receive the knowledge of the truth. In other words, we've studied in the scripture as a believer, and God has pointed out that a particular thing is wrong to do as a believer, or a particular thing is wrong to do if we don't do it. So there's two ways to look at that. This, we call them sins of commission and sins of omission, like assembling together. That's something we're supposed to do. So if a Christian quits doing that, and God points that out here in Hebrews, they need to forsake you know to not forsake the assembling together and they continue to forsake assembling together that's considered by this scripture a willful sin they are deciding as a believer to shake their fists at god and say i don't care what you're telling me i am going to continue doing whatever i please that is the definition of a carnal christian so we have a choice as believers to be carnal or spiritual and so if we choose as a believer to be carnal and sin willfully when we have been pointed out by Scripture that a particular thing is wrong to do or it is important that we make sure we do it, what happens? It says there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Well, this all connects to 1 John 2 because in 1 John, you know what it talks about in, in, in Chapter 1, in fact, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. All right, when we admit, the word confess means admit, when we're pointed out something is wrong, we admit it. The blood takes care of that. The whole purpose, you know, in the Old Testament, there was the blood shed by the animals that were brought in sacrifice. Jesus now is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types, not only the atonement, uh, which was the covering, but now the cleansing, the washing away. And as we he is now our high priest, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse. is that word cleanse from all unrighteousness. So that's what we're supposed to be doing as believers. The Christian who's not doing that, they refuse, there's no more sacrifice for sins. In other words, when they get to the judgment seat, they have to answer for that. We as believers have to answer for something that we have refused to confess, that God has pointed out through his word is wrong. All right, so there's a, So let's go on in verse 27. Here's what we have to look forward to if that's what we choose to do. A certain fearful looking for of judgment. We just read in 1 John about love and fear. Here's some fear. And a lot of Christians aren't aware of this because, as you know, um, you think about the, the basic things. We have churches who believe, and this is what's in their doctrine and their teaching. Uh, that you can lose your salvation, which is not scriptural. What we know that to mean is they think they can get lost again, and so they have to get saved again and lost again. None of that's scriptural, but there are churches that believe that. And then there are, of course, churches who believe that uh, you can't lose your salvation, which we're of those churches. We know that once you're saved, you're always saved. But they go on and say, but it doesn't matter what you do as a Christian because... Um, you're going to go to heaven regardless. Yes, we're going to go to heaven regardless. What it does matter and where it does have an effect is what we do as believers has an effect on what happens at the judgment seat in relationship to the thousand-year kingdom. So that's where it matters. It does matter. And then I've talked to people who say, well, the way they talk about that is say, well, those people who say that they're believers, they're not really believers. They just say they're believers. So, you know, because if they're not in church and they're not living right, they weren't really saved to begin with. That's how they get around that, but that's not scriptural. We're saved when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. What we do from that point on does matter whether we are spiritual, that is, in his will, or whether we are carnal, living for ourselves. So, going back here, this is what we have to look forward to if we are sinning willfully, that is, continuing in a sin God has pointed out as wrong, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment... And fiery indignation, because it's uh, where the works are tried through fire, which shall devour the adversaries. And this is similar to later in Hebrews 11, or excuse me, Hebrews 6, earlier in Hebrews, um, as Brother Jerry was recently teaching on about the thorns and the briars are nigh unto burning. So it's not these Christians that are burned, it's the works that they produced, which will not remain. If you go to 1 Corinthians 3, you know the difference in whether it's gold, silver, and precious stones or wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and stubble burn up. Those are works that don't count. I mean, a lot of Christians are working really hard. I like to think about it as if you were out running, the difference in running in place, we don't get anywhere. You're just staying right there. A lot of Christians are working really hard, but they're just running in place. They're not on the path. They they don't know where they're going. A Christian who knows about the judgment seat of Christ and knows about reward and knows about the kingdom. They know there's a reason to run the race rather than stand there running in place, working really hard and wondering why they're not going anywhere. All right. So here's uh, the scripture about fear. Now coming back, if you will, to First John chapter four. First John chapter four again, verse eighteen. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. So if we're a Christian who, when God points out something is wrong, we confess it and get back at his will, that's something that has to be done on a daily basis. Isn't that something? A lot of churches, you know, it's how you come down the aisle, you get saved, and that's it. That's the beginning of the Christian life. You don't even have to come down the aisle. You can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ right in the pew where you are, at a home, wherever you are. I realize now when I came down the aisle in a church, Easter Sunday, 1971. I was 11 years old, and I believed in Lord Jesus Christ. But I'd asked my mother that week before, because we had just started going to church in February as a family. And I asked my mother, I said, "What do they keep talking about believing in Jesus? What's that?" And she said, "Well, if you believe in Jesus, you're saved. And you get to go to heaven." And I said, "Well, I believe that." So I already knew at that point I believed it. And then I was told to go forward in the church, and I did that. And then I was baptized. I didn't understand until later that I was saved the moment I believed, not the, when I came down the aisle. So that's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so here again it says, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect. In love, the Christian, the carnal Christian who's not confessing their sin, continuing in it, their love is not reaching its potential. They'll not stand boldly at the judgment seat. It says, because he that fears is not made perfect in love. That connects to that, going back to that fear. Now, verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. Now, this is important throughout scripture. You know, we're pointing out certain things. Um, it's not the other way around, so we need to keep that in mind. In In John 15, we saw that too about I am the vine, you are the branches. We can't produce fruit unless we're connected in the vine. The vine, it's from the vine that the sap flows through the branch to produce fruit, not we ourselves. We can't produce it on our own. Without him, we can do nothing. So we know the we love him, we as believers, love him because he first loved us. Not that we loved him and he decided, oh, because you're loving me, then I'll love you. Verse 20. If a man say, I love God, and we're talking context of believers here, because I don't know why a lost person would say that. That would be weird. If you don't believe in God, why would you say you love him? I don't know why you would say that. So if a Christian, so that's the context, say, and the word man is in the Greek, by the way, anthropone, I just point that out because it means a human being, so it means male or female, it doesn't mean just males only. If a Christian say, male or female, I love God, and at the same time, I add that little, because that's what it means here, while they're saying they love God, hates his brother, he, that Christian, is a liar, it says. So it doesn't make sense. It's, it's contradictory. We can't say as believers we love God if we're hating our brothers and sisters in Christ. The whole subject of what he's talking about is loving the brethren, which is, and I keep bringing this up, but I remember this one church I heard uh, the pastor wanted, there's a translation of the Bible out there that's not gender specific, so it can't, it doesn't refer to Jesus as king, because kings are thought of as males, so it changes all the words so that they're not, it's not king or queen or he, it's, it's. I don't know if you've heard about that translation but anyway it's just weird so instead of brethren it says either children or brethren brothers and sisters whatever it ties to but we understand it's in the context of a lot of languages that we do that we have in fact in english we have very few things that we don't do that are masculine we have a few things that are feminine if you talk about a country we say she if we talk about a ship we say she but most things we refer to is in that in a lot of senses are masculine All right, I don't want to get into a subject of language, but that's just English. So it has nothing, it's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't make sense. If we are not loving one another, then we can't say we love God. We can say it, but we're lying because it wouldn't be true. Now, for, the word for means because, he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God, who, whom he has not seen? We, as God's children, have never seen God with our physical eyes, so it doesn't make sense to say, you know, to say we're not loving one another, you know, and, and then claim that we love God. That doesn't make any sense because we can see one another, we can't see God. So that it doesn't even make sense. Verse twenty-one. And this commandment have we from Him. That he who loves God loves his brother also. So, this was something when it says this commandment we have from him. Jesus specifically taught about this in his ministry. So, holding your place, we'll look at one scripture where it's brought out John 13. Jesus, during his ministry, taught this, he commanded it. John 13 and verse 34. John 13. That's the wrong scripture. So I think I meant Matthew, but let me see. <laughs> Sorry. Or Mark, <laughs> 34. Yep. Oh, it is the right one. I'm just looking at the wrong one in my scripture. Okay, thank you. Done that before I look at the wrong heading. John thirteen thirty-four. Get the page turning. Yes, a new commandment I give to you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. So this is something that Jesus in His ministry commanded, and John wrote down what Jesus said in His gospel. And here in His letter, the first First John, we come back to First John, we see that He reminds us of that in verse twenty-one. Now, chapter five whosoever believes that Jesus is, and in the Greek it has the definite article, and here it is too in English, which is not always there, Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. Now, I pointed out this before, but I want to remind you, the phrase born of God is unique to 1 John. You can just look at it as it comes up to something that it's talking about. I want to say something about the Greek, and this is, Not that I'm saying you shouldn't study Greek or if you have the opportunity, but I always feel like that a lot of people don't have the chance to do this. But you can always, through context, figure out the subject of what it's talking about, even if you don't know the Greek. One thing unique about Greek, once you then, if you got the context right, you can go to the Greek and you'll find that the Greek matches exactly. It just works out that way every time. It's just if you have the right context of the scripture, the Greek will work out. But as Jerry was recently teaching, he pointed out the word believeth here in the King James, which we in modern English say believes, is present active participle. So those of you that love grammar, which I got grammar first in fifth grade, and I've loved grammar ever since. I was one of those people in seventh grade when we had to diagram sentences. I love going to the board and doing that. That's just something... Math was my favorite subject always, but I loved grammar, loved diagramming sentences. And not to get off on another tangent, but languages are interesting. You know, we learn our own native tongue by growing up hearing it, right? Other people learn other languages the same way. They grow up hearing it. When you learn a foreign language, the way it's usually taught is you learn a bunch of grammar, when we were little learning English, we didn't learn grammar. If we heard it spoken correctly, that's how we learned it. We, don't, we didn't know why it was that way. We just learned that's how we talk, and that's the right way to talk unless we heard improper grammar, and there are people that learned it that way, and it's hard for them to get straightened out because they heard it in their ear all those years. Instead of saying, I knew it, they say, I knowed better or something like that. So um, different, I've heard people speak that way, and that's the way they heard it, so they think that's right. Um, but I just point that out because that's not what we usually learn language. But here in Greek, Greek is a very perfect language. So this one word is present, active, participle. The active means it's something we have to do ourselves. It's not passive, meaning it's done, it's indirect, but it's we, we have to do it. Present means it's now going on a participle, means like ing on the end. So believing. So this is a continuing. This is not... When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and got saved, this has to do with believing as Christians. That's what Jerry was teaching. So, whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. Now, there's a lot important here because the word Christ, Christe in the Greek, means translated Christ which is the same in the Hebrew, referring to the anointed one of the Messiah. It means king. Jesus is the king. And you can't have a king if you don't have a kingdom. So the kingdom is the thousand-year kingdom that's coming. That's what Jesus will be ruling and reigning over. So it's important to know that. Now this phrase is born of God. So let's look at that as we go on. It says, and everyone that loves him, that's referring to God, God the Father, That loves God the Father, that loves him, that begat, it helps in English if you put a comma after begat, loves him that begat, the one that begat is the Father, Jesus is begotten of the Father. So everyone that loves him that begat, loves him also that is begotten of him. The begotten and the born are the same words, by the way, okay, so So that's why it's all connected together, and sometimes the chapter divisions were added much later. So don't get confused. It's the same subject. John's still talking about the same thing, loving the brethren. So that's what he's talking about here. So if we love the Father, then we love those who are born of of him or begotten of him. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God. So here where it says begotten of him in verse 1. It makes it clear in verse two, it's talking about God's children. We know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So there's the two things mentioned here. We know we can know that we're loving the brethren or loving the children of God when we love God and are keeping his commandments. Verse three, for this is the love of God. Here it's defined. So we talk about in verse two, we love God. Here in verse three it's defined. And this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So a lot of people think, oh, that's the Ten Commandments. Well, Jesus summed up the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. And love your neighbor as yourself. When you think about the first four commandments anyway are tied to loving God, and the rest, 5 through 10, are tied to loving your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to murder them. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from them. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to go to court and bear false witness against them. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to covet them or your neighbor's wife or, or spouse or whatever. And all of those things that are in the Ten Commandments, the whole idea is summed up. So that's how we love God. So how do we love God? We keep his commandments. We do what he tells us to do. Now, it also says in verse 3, and his commandments are not grievous, that means they're not burdensome. So holding your place here, let's see, in Matthew chapter 11, just to remind us of a scripture I think most of you have memorized. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, we'll start in verse 28, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is a rest that's given. All you have to do is come, and it's given. Next part's a little different. In verse 25, instead of given, you'll see the word find. He's telling us as believers, take my yoke upon you, um, unless you're aware of this or have ever seen one or how it used to work right before tractors were involved in and plowing fields, they would take two oxen and put this harness device over the necks of two of them. It was called, this thing here called a yoke. It would yoke them or join them together so they had the power of two ox, oxen pulling the plow through the field instead of one. So, so when we started with the combustible engine, we talked about horsepower because before it was horses that pull, pulled the carriages. So then we used horsepower, how many, it was equivalent to how many horsepower horses would be pulled in the carriage so here it has to do with oxen that they would use and plowing the field so this yoke joins them together that's what he's talking about a partnership or joining he says take my yoke upon you he's telling us jesus is telling us as believers and learn of me so it's a partnership and we need to get in the word and learn about him He, he says something about Himself. I am meek and lowly in heart. A lot of people understand the word meek. But in order to be meek like Jesus was, he had to be totally yielded to the Father. This wasn't weak. People misinterpret the word meek to be weak. Yes, Jesus was meek on the cross. Think about the strength of that, that he did not respond the way he could have if he wanted to. You know, we sing the song he could have called 10,000 Angels. He could have stopped it all right there, but he did it for us. He continued through it. I am meek and lowly, this humbleness of heart. And ye, it says if we do that, we take the yoke and learn of him. It says, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Notice it says souls here, talking about our Christian lives. Now verse 30 to, to tie in where we are in John, First John. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he'll never put more honest, that's in the scripture too, then we're able to bear there's always a way through it if we're trusting him we don't always escape through it whatever it is because we don't always keep trusting but it's never too heavy and coming back to 1 John then so he says his commandments are not grievous he doesn't give us really when you think about loving your neighbor um, you know, loving one another the whole subject of this is loving one another it, and we're human so that's not always it means it's easy by the way this love is agape love which we understand which is unconditional it's God's love through us it's not our own love there's different kinds of love most of our conditional you know somebody says I love you because you did this and because you do that and because you don't do that that's not unconditional love or I love you if there's conditional love where it's, I love you if you do this or if you do that this is God's love Loves no matter. That's how he loves us, no matter what we've done. We can confess it, and he'll forgive us. That's why he wants us to love one another. He says, as I have loved you, so love one another. Verse 4. Got a few minutes left. For whatsoever, here's this phrase again, is born of God, overcomes the world. So if you immediately forget that the subject here is talking about Christians who are spiritual in reference to the born of God, then you would come up with the idea here that it's saying all Christians, because that's what most people interpret this, born of God means, all overcome the world. And that is not scriptural. In fact, we're going to look, if God permits, a little bit of time, which we're going to run out of, is not the case. Not all of us will overcome the world. Carnal Christians will not overcome. It says, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, the word even is italicized. That means it's the King James writers added it. Um, they added up any words like that they thought would be helpful. In modern English, even usually means and also. So that's not what it is, and also. It's just saying, the, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. You know the word faith means believe, and that's the word back in verse 1, believing. So it's the same thing. It's talking about in our Christian lives. Our faith as Christians, to trust, to believe throughout our Christian lives, that's the ones that will overcome. So holding your place in First John, if God permits, we'll be back, but I don't know. It might be a couple of weeks. All right, let's go to uh, Revelation. And in Revelation, we'll look at a few verses in chapter 2 or 3, just talking about what happens to us if we overcome. Revelation chapter 2. We'll look first at verse 7. Revelation 2, 7. Revelation 2 and verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, it says this every time to all seven messages. So... lost people don't have this ear. You can't have this ear unless you're a believer. So this isn't talking to lost people. To him, since it's the ones who have the ear, it's talking to Christians, that overcome, this is what gets to happen, I will give to eat of the tree of life. That word, life is important because the difference in that is, is death, and that's not talking about physical life. It's talking about the soul talking about thousand years in the kingdom this word life here but it's the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of god i don't have time to do a whole sermon i could do we could do a whole study on each of these verses but for time we'll go on jump down to verse uh, seven uh, verse 11 He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. And that would take a long time to go over so that you're not confused with the great white throne judgment where the lost people are raised um, into their physical bodies and then they're cast in and they die the second death. So people, when they see the word life and death, they immediately think physical. This can't be talking about physical here. But anyway, that's another message. Let's drop down to verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written, which no one knows, the word saving means except he that receives it, a unique new name that no one will know except the one who gets it. These are only for us if we overcome all right, let's jump to uh, verse 26, chapter 2, 26, Revelation 2, 26. He that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give power, that means authority, over the nations. It's talking about during the millennial kingdom. It's talking about having authority to rule if we overcome, verse 27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of potter shall they be broken in shivers, even as I received of my father. So let's see, Jesus has been granted this. We will be granted to have the same authority to rule with him if we overcome. Verse 28, and we'll give him the morning star. And then it has the same thing he that hath in here, let him hear. Let's jump to chapter three. Oh, got to hurry. I'll try to get at least... Through these couple scriptures. Chapter 3, we'll jump down to uh, verse 5. He that overcomes the same shall be clothed in white raiment. When you go to chapter 19, you know that white raiment is is the, is the wedding garment. It's clean and white. Christians that overcome, they get this white raiment. And I will not blot, blot out his name out of the book of life. life. That has nothing to do with people confuse that. This is not when we get saved. There's a book for that. This is the book of life. This has to do with getting reward or not. If our name is blotted out of that, we'll not gain reward. We'll not get this white garment because we haven't overcome It says, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And we don't have time to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, but it says, if if we suffer with him, this is Christians, if we suffer with him in our Christian lives, we shall reign with him. That's in the thousand-year kingdom. But then it says, if we deny him, he will deny us. That's talking about us as believers. We will be denied. So that's why it says here... If we're overcome, he will confess his name before my father. That Christian's name will be confessed before the father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear. All right, quickly, verse 12. Jump down to verse 12. He that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of God, which is a new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear. Let's jump to uh, verse um, 21. This is the last one we have time for. Revelation three twenty-one: To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me and in my throne. Jesus saying that if we overcome, we get to sit with him in his throne. Even as I also overcame and have sat down with my father in his throne, he that hath an ear, let him hear. So that's all connected to overcoming And our time has run out this morning, but let us pray. Father, we thank you again for allowing us a few moments in your word to be reminded about what it means as your children to love you means to love one another. And to love one another doesn't mean I hope things go great for you. But if there's something that you convict us that needs to be done that you would then give us the means to do so. Father, we know that sometimes it's simply a prayer. Sometimes it's a kind word. There's lots of ways that you can use us to love one another. But first, we have to be in your will and connected to each other, because if we're not, we won't even know some of the things people might be going through of our own family of brothers and sisters. We pray your will be done in our lives and we ask it now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.